Hey everybody, this is Senior Pastor Joshua B. Carson saying thank you for tuning into the CT Podcast. We hope that your time here, whether you're driving down the road or whether you're sitting at home with a journal and listening in, we hope that it's effective. Maybe it'll be inspirational, encouraging. Maybe it'll be thought-provoking. Regardless of what session you're listening to, we truly pray that this is a benefit to you and to your family. God bless and enjoy the podcast. So the, these things that I'm going to teach on tonight, they are truths that God has revealed in his word. And I want to start somewhere a little bit different, and we're going to get to the book um, tonight, and, and the media team has helped me with some slides. But before we do that, I want to um, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. And before I read, once you get there, we're, I just would like us to pray for just a moment, because it is a... This is a process of revelation. I want to pray that the Lord just moves into this place and helps us. And maybe there's somebody here that maybe he's even been attending Calvary Tabernacle for a while that hasn't quite yet really realized who he is. Or maybe there's somebody here that has been raised in a Trinitarian background that does not know this wonderful truth that we know. And, and my spirit tonight is not to offend on purpose, but it is to just simply open up the word of God and let the word of God do its work. And, and Jesus was a stumbling block, not because he meant to be, but because he was the word incarnate, because he was the truth. And the truth can be offensive because it is true. And so we just need the spirit of revelation to come in tonight because it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks, because he is the one that reveals himself. So let's pray together just right where you're seated. God, we love you. And I'm so thankful for this opportunity to, to speak to your people, this great church. And I pray that you would just let the revelation of who you are just flow into this place, God, as we open up your word and take a look at your thoughts from your book. God, help us tonight. God, lift us up, strengthen us. And God, we give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter number 11, verse number one, would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. So Paul is, this is, of course, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he's telling them, I, I'm not perfect, but bear with me because I'm jealous for you over, with a godly jealousy. I am protective of you because you mean something to me. And so I don't always get it right, but I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to teach you the truth. And he says, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul removes any ambiguity in our mind about whether or not doctrine matters. He said, I have presented you to Christ. And just like when you get married, you don't get to change those vows five years in. Those vows are forever settled till death do you part for the forever of the union. But he has presented God's church to Christ one time, forever settled in heaven. There is no such thing as an evolving doctrine of the church. Those are those are that's an oxymoron. Doctrines, true doctrines cannot evolve. As soon as they start evolving, you knew this is. This is not a doctrine anymore. 
He said, I have espoused you to present you to Christ, but I fear. Now he has a fear. Now if the apostle Paul has a fear, let's pay attention. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility. Now, once, once you go back to the, the, the fall of man, you know you're talking about something fundamental, not a side issue, fundamental. He said, I'm afraid because just like the enemy that beguiled Eve through subtility, not violence, not force, but subtility, manipulation, lies, partial truths, half-truths, half God said, using God's word against him. He said, I, I am afraid for you that just as the serpent beguiled Eve, and we know who that serpent is. It is the devil. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. Now, what I'm going to present to you tonight is that the doctrine of the oneness of God is the simplicity that is in Christ. It is, it is the simplest way to understand God. It is what has been, and I will show to you, what, it is what was delivered to the saints at Corinth. It is what Paul believed, and it is what he is afraid that the serpent, through subtility, through philosophy, or vain deceit, the Bible says, would hold back the truth in unrighteousness, would tell partial truths, half-truths mingled with lies that would pull away and would distract those that had been once delivered to Christ from being in right relationship with him. And so I'm going to give you just a few examples, if you don't mind, about what I mean when I say that the oneness of God who he is and his, the revelation of who he is is the simplest way to understand him. I was here at the church when I was a young adult and I was work, doing some volunteer work. I think I was stocking the bookstore uh, with all the candy in there. And uh, that was one of my, my jobs and I love doing it. And uh, it was a Friday and there weren't a lot of people here. And my mom is, was the receptionist at the time and a lady called into the church and she was distressed. And I don't, I, her name was Tiffany. She was distressed. She had a lot of problems in her life. And so she needed to talk to somebody and, and she wanted to talk to somebody right then. And so I was here and, and I was a Bible college student and I was gung ho to, to uh, you know, teach a Bible study. And so I got on the phone with her and, and I started talking to her and uh, she was at, I want a Bible study now. Well, I, you know, okay. And so I pulled out my phone and pulled up Acts 2. I didn't know where else to go. You know, if we're going to have, if I got one shot, let's go right to the source, right? We're going to Acts 2. You know, it's over the phone and she's desperate. So here we go. So I just started, I just started preaching at her like, like Peter preached. I just preached his sermon and, you know, you begin to read that and all of a sudden the revelation of, of Jesus just appears there, who he is and that who he said he was and how they crucified the Lord of glory. And, uh, and I said, you know, this is, he's, God is one. Jesus is the mighty God incarnate there. The doctrine of the Trinity was developed centuries later. It's, it's just not in the Bible. It's just not true. And she, and she just, she just said, I am so relieved to hear that. She said, because I, every time I prayed, I felt guilty 
If I prayed to the father, I felt like the son would get offended at me. And if I prayed to the son, I felt like the spirit, I was neglecting the spirit and I didn't know. And I was trying to time my prayers to each person in heaven. And I said, no, when you pray to Jesus, you pray to them all. You just call on the name of Jesus. You don't have to time it out. You don't have to have a prayer chart of who you're praying to. There's a simplicity that's in Christ. There you have one savior. I'll give you another example. I was um, in a home in Arkansas. I did home visits uh, for my career when I, when I, while I was youth pastoring. And I learned a lot in those home visits, being in different people's homes and seeing how they lived. And, and uh, this one home in rural Arkansas that the man had been disabled and he was living with his mother and she was his caregiver and I was there doing a home visit and audit on them. And, and he was real chatty and asked me what I did and you know, what, what, you know, where I went to church because they assume everybody goes to church in that part of the country. And so he was right. I did go to church. And I said, well, I'm a youth pastor, Cornerstone Apostolic Church. And he said, oh, I'd love to come visit. Oh, I'd love to come visit your church. And I said, well, yeah, you're welcome anytime. But I could see the whole time we're talking, his mom's countenance fell, to use the good King James language. And she, she got concerned. Her brow furrowed. And I knew she didn't like the name of our church. And... Um, I figured there was something coming. And she said, can I ask you a question? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, apostolic, doesn't that mean that you deny the doctrine of the Trinity? And I said, yes, ma'am, we believe in the oneness of God. And she, she uh, looked back at me and said, well, are you Pentecostal, aren't you? And I said, yes, we are. And she said, well, how do you teach that you can receive the spirit if you don't believe that he exists? And, you know, it's a fair question. And I said, well, no, we, we absolutely believe that the spirit exists. It's the spirit that overshadowed Mary that allowed her to give birth to Jesus. And it was the spirit that anointed and God is a spirit. And, you know, it's kind of went through through those things. And if you have not the spirit of Christ, you're none of his. So the spirit that we receive is the spirit of Christ. And so, we, yeah, we just teach that you receive the spirit of Jesus in you. And, the, and she kind of was thinking through that. And I said, let me ask you a question. So when you get to heaven, and I, I felt the weight of those words because I felt a burden for her. I want her to get to heaven. I, I still feel that. Even retelling this story, I just think, Lord, help her. I've, I, I can't pull up her name, but just, Lord, the Lord knows. Lord, help her. Reveal who you, yourself to her. And I said, when you get to heaven, how many thrones will you see? And she said, one. And I said, who will sit on the throne? And she said, Jesus. I said, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. There's a simplicity that's in this thing. There's a simplicity that's in this. There is one throne. There is one God. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. We can call on that name. Let me give you another example. This one comes directly from the scripture. And I noticed it in my Bible that delineates the words of Christ by putting them in a different color. And they made the decision, the editors of this Bible, they made the decision to put it all the way through the New Testament into the book of Revelation. And so your Bible might have red letters. Mine has blue letters for the words of Christ. But Revelation chapter one, verse number eight, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. They chose to put those in blue letters. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. But then when you flip over to Revelation 21, 
Verse number five, he and he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. And those words are in black because it's coming from the throne. It's coming from the throne of God. So they put those words in black. They, their editors are worried. They're like, well, you know, Jesus said it before. And now this this coming from the throne. But if we put them in blue, maybe we'll compromise this doctrine and and it will offend people. So let's we have to put those in black. But then when you turn the page to Revelation 22, verse number 12, and it says, and I and behold, I come quickly. Who's coming back? Jesus is coming back. And my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And they have to put those words in blue because there's no denying who's saying that. Jesus is saying that. Friends, how can you have two Alpha and Omegas? How can you have two first and the last? How can you have two everything that is? There's a simplicity that's in this. So the... What we're going to talk about tonight is, is about passages that have perhaps been used wrongly to read the doctrine of the Trinity into scripture, but we don't have to be the ones that are back on our heels defensive. We don't have to be the ones that are back on our heels defensive because there is a simplicity that's to this thing. We don't have to explain away the Trinity. We have to just show how the consistent uh, application of Scripture reveals who God is. Let me give you one more before we move to Brother Bernard's book. I was, I was in the bookstore when I was an undergraduate here at, at a university in, in town, Butler University, and, and I walked into the, to the bookstore, and there was this book sitting on the uh, shelf, and it said, Books by Our, by our Faculty. And the title was The Only True God, Early Christian Monotheism in its Jewish Context. And I thought, well, that looks like a book that I might be interested in. So I picked it up. It was $55. I didn't buy it, but I did spend a little time in the bookstore reading through it. <laughs> I didn't take it out of the bookstore. I just, I was, I was a college student. $55 was, whew, that was a little, that was a lot. And so I just, uh, Put it back, but I remembered the title, and I it's it's now on Amazon, and it's it's quite a bit cheaper. So I I went ahead and bought it, but and I, I wouldn't even necessarily recommend it, it. But what's interesting about it is, um, Dr. McGrath, James F. McGrath, is a New Testament scholar. He specializes in John and Paul's writings, and he has this unique worldview of he is a Trinitarian. However. He's also a postmodernist, so he doesn't believe that Scripture has that much authority. And so he is liberated to say what Scripture says. And so um, because he does, he thinks, well, it, OK, yeah, Scripture teaches teaches this, but we're not really bound by that because we have a living faith and it evolves over time. So let me just let me just read you a couple of things. I, they have a quote they're going to put. On there, and I, you can read. This is in the conclusion. This is on page one hundred and one hundred one. Um, it says this, which in context is the doctrine of the Trinity, was not part of the thinking of either early Judaism or earliest Christianity. That's just that's just the simple truth. 
However, it is a spectacularly helpful and inspiring development. Not doctrine, development. It developed. There, that no one can deny its development. No one can deny that Paul had no concept of this, that he died and he was executed and went to be with the Lord, never knowing the term Trinity, never understanding the term eternal son, never knowing those things. He died never knowing those things, which may therefore be justified if not on biblical grounds. Gives up the game right there. It is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Just, that's why I say we don't have to rock back on our heels and be in a defensive position. If you just believe this book, read it, love it, God will reveal himself to you. And there is no doctrine of the Trinity found in those pages. And anyone that is honest will tell you that. But then he has to justify it. Then on its necessity for maintaining the intelligibility of certain other key concepts about the divine that are intrinsic to both Judaism and Christianity. So he does defend it, but not on biblical grounds, on some philosophical grounds, philosophy or vain deceit that you are pulled away from the simplicity by subtility. You're convinced of a lie. And so I get angry at the doctrine of the Trinity because I do see that it traps people in thinking that they know God and they don't even know the very basic nature of who he is. And so we have to preach the truth in love because it's, it's liberating to know the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that's what we've got to do. So now let's turn to, um, Brother Bernard's book, The Oneness of God. And I've got some, before we turn to the, to the, and I'm aware of the time, and I've got four concepts right from the book that he calls them important aids to understanding when you're going to evaluate a passage that perhaps looks uh, difficult on the surface. So, and I thought these are very, very helpful. And then we'll dive in and look at a couple of passages. But if you don't have the book, I would certainly recommend it. He talks about a lot more passages uh, from, the New from the New Testament that he, he offers a good explanation for um, than uh, can be covered in this, this study tonight. But number, number one, when we see a, a plural, especially a duality in reference to Jesus, we must think of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. This is a real duality. So the incarnation, how God could become a man is a mystery. You could think on that your whole life. How could God become a man? But making God one yet three persons does not help you understand the mystery of the incarnation. It just complicates matters because the, the, the basic doctrine of the Trinity is that the persons are co-equal, co-eternal. And that they all have the same attributes. And so if the son is a second person of the Trinity, he would also be omnipresent. So he would still be in heaven and in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ bows his knee to pray, he's still praying to himself. It doesn't help you understand it. It, it doesn't it doesn't aid in understanding. It. And it's not in the Bible. So let's just preach and teach what the Bible says. Let's not let's not make accommodations to this world. 
Let's just hold firm to the word of God. So you, there is a real duality, but it's a duality between humanity and deity. Number two, when we read a difficult passage relative to Jesus, we should ask if it describes him in his role as God or in his role as a man or both. Does he speak as God or just a man? Jesus had that dual nature. So when he prays, God cannot pray to God. That would violate the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no, in, in, in that doctrine, in the way it's structured, there is no subordinate God. So the Spirit could not pray to the Father. That wouldn't, it would break the doctrine. So when you see Christ praying, he is, his humanity is praying to the omnipresent Spirit. So it doesn't help. You got to remember that. Number three, when we see a plural in relation to God, we must view it as a plurality of roles or relationships to mankind and not leap to the illogical conclusion of a plurality of persons. We were created in God's image. How many persons are you? If you are three persons, we say there's a problem. There's a simplicity, folks. I don't mean to make light of it, but I'm just saying we were created in the image of God and we are one. We have a body. We have a spirit, but we are one. We are one person. We are one being. Our thoughts are our thoughts. Our voice is our voice. Things that have a voice have a person and there's a oneness to that person. If you hear voices in your head, there is a problem. If you have other voices other than your own, you get you get that taken care of. There's a simplicity there. There he is. Number four, and I've already proved this. This, this is, uh, Dr. McGrath said this in his book. We should remember that the New Testament writers had no conception of the doctrine of the Trinity. It was still far in the future and they came from a strict monotheistic Jewish background. So it's those four principles that I think can guide you when you're looking at a passage and you don't have to let that anxiety creep up like, oh, maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe, maybe there is such a thing as the Trinity when you see something like the baptism of Jesus. You, don't have, you, can, you can just rest assured that, no, we let Scripture speak to Scripture. And, and Deuteronomy 6, 4 governs all of Scripture. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's, you can just take that to the bank. That's just set in stone. That's that, that governs all of scripture. And so you don't have to be defensive when you read these things and understand that, that, that you can remove the lens of this doctrine that has developed that the writers of the new Testament had no concept of. And then you can begin to more fully see who God is. But yes, there will be some difficulty there because we're talking about the incarnation. God became a man, fully God and fully man, as pastor has taught about fully God and fully man. You're not going to really wrap your mind around that, how that's even possible. That's why we worship him. He came to this earth to save us. What a, what a mystery that is that the mighty God could walk in his creation, could become a man and live among us. So now let's look at a few passages of scripture and try to apply these rules that we have laid out to them. First one is Matthew chapter number three. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan. This is verse 13 unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me. 
Jesus answering him said unto him, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened up unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you have the Trinitarian lens on, obviously there are three manifestations of God. I don't think it helps to jump to the term persons. I don't think it helps you understand this passage any better. What we see here is Jesus coming to be baptized of John the Baptist. Now, first of all, you have to understand what was happening with why was Jesus baptized? He was not baptized to forgive sin. This is not after the cross. This is not when baptism uh, becomes a part of the plan of salvation. In fact, those that were baptized by John, we know from Acts 19, needed to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit, the plan of salvation was to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So this is an, an Old Testament baptism, which you see it often in the Old Testament in terms of washing. There was a washing that took place and there was an anointing that took place before you could enter into certain roles of service in the Old Testament church. Roles like prophet, priest, and king, which, of which Jesus fulfilled all three. So this was baptism into the, his earthly ministry. It was a washing into his earthly ministry. And it wasn't about him. It was about the, those that witnessed it and announcing that this is the one. He is the Messiah. And he was anointed, not just with oil as a symbol of the spirit, but he was anointed with this mysterious manifestation of the spirit. But God is omnipresent. There are other times in scripture where we hear the voice of God and see a manifestation of God and we don't automatically have to think two persons. Nobody in the Jewish world would have thought that Mount Sinai, the cloud was the spirit and the voice was the father. They understood that there was one voice and one manifestation. It was the glory of God. God is a spirit. No man has seen God at any time. So of course God could be in Christ. God could be in heaven speaking and God could descend on him like a dove with the anointing of the spirit. You know, God can speak to multiple people in the world at once. Aren't you thankful God doesn't have limited attention that he just turns to you and he can't hear anybody else's prayer and you got to get in line to, you know, and, and, and calling, you never been to the BMV and they call your number and you get there and you're like number 72, you look up there on number three, you're like, there goes my Saturday. Right. And you're waiting in line for that person to get done so that they can help you and get out of there and redeem your day. You don't have to get a number when you come to the Lord. He, he's he's all knowing. He's omnipresent. He he is as close as the mention of his name. So I see the omnipresence of God here. John chapter number one tells us more about the purpose of it. John chapter one, beginning at. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Beth Arba beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John see a Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man, which is preferred before me. For he was before me. 
He was before me, meaning he was the God of the Old Testament because John was born first. But he was before me, before Abraham was. I am. I am. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I come baptizing with water and John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him. The same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Now, this subjugates the Holy Ghost to Christ, which violates the doctrine of the Trinity. It is Jesus that baptizes with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Why why doesn't the spirit baptize with himself? No, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Ghost and you receive the spirit of Christ. Why didn't the father overshadow Mary to allow Jesus to be born? No, it was the spirit that overshadowed Mary. So how is the father the father if he's a separate person from the spirit? Just don't be pulled away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Don't be pulled away from the simplicity that is in Christ. So when you read a story like Jesus's baptism, yes, you see different manifestations of the God that is invisible, but that is in the revelation business. You don't have to go immediately to a dislogical conclusion about three persons. And if, if you're You know, that's why you'll hear some good denominal folks talk about the the doctrine of Scripture and the historical development of the church. Well, we reject that. And we don't just get our our history from Azusa Street or from 1940. We our history goes all the way back to the book of Acts. And and this word says that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So just because history didn't record it doesn't mean there has not always been a church. And I think if you I think you know, like Dr. French has done a lot of uh, digging Brother Talmadge French and, and they're, they're finding more and more history of churches that were ignored that teach what we teach. So we don't have to, we don't have to rock back on our heels and, and be afraid or, or be a weak or worried that we just, that we're some new phenomenon. No, we are, we get our roots from the book of acts. We believe what Paul believed. We believe what Peter believed there was, I wish I could remember it, but I read a line in this book. He said, there's nobody that believes like the first Christians anymore. And I thought, well, let me, let me introduce myself. He just doesn't know we exist, but we do. We're here. We're here. The gates of hell could not prevail against the church. Here we are as a living testimony that this word is preserved, that the name of Jesus still works. So now let's turn and I'm coming to a close quickly, but let's turn now to a second scripture in Acts chapter number seven, starting at verse number 51. Acts seven is a phenomenal chapter of the Bible. It, uh, the first martyr of the church and his beautiful sermon and God just anoints Stephen to preach a masterpiece. And I find it so interesting that Stephen is not even, uh, an original apostle. He was somebody that was elected to serve tables. Anybody serve tables in the church before? Anybody ever cooked a funeral dinner? Anybody ever set up tables, tore down tablecloths, washed, ironed them? You know, that's just the work of the church. And it was, he was the one that God chose to testify of him before the Sanhedrin. If you have the Holy ghost, God can call on you. And God can give you the words to say, and God can equip you and you can stand before Kings and you don't have to be ashamed. 
and you don't have to be fearful because God will give you the strength and God will give you the words to say and he'll bring it to your mind. You just got to be full of the Holy Ghost, faithfully serving the Lord and God can use you. God can use you. You don't have to carry around a big Bible or have a title or be ordained. You can just be full of the Holy Ghost, living for God and God can anoint you and God can use you. Just love this word. Just read it, live it, pour it into your heart. Be faithful to church and see what God will do with your life. But he preaches and he gets bold in the spirit. And if you're a preacher, this makes you want to preach till you read the end of the chapter. And then you're like, whoo, okay, maybe not. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Now, who did, he, who did they think he meant? The third person of the Trinity in this Sanhedrin court? Did they say, what's this Holy Ghost thing? What are you talking about? We don't know that. We're not Christians. We're Jews. No, he meant the Holy One of Israel. You do always resist Yahweh. You do always resist Jehovah. You do always resist the one God. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one. Capital letters, the just one. Who is the just one? Well, it's Jesus, but he's also the Holy Ghost. And he's Yahweh. He's the one, the just one. They knew exactly what he meant. You, 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 before the just one came, before the Messiah came, before God himself came, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers. They, he wasn't accusing them of murdering some rebel rouser. He was accusing them of murdering God. Of murdering their God who brought them out of Egypt, who gave them the law, who spoke on Mount Sinai. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Who have received the law by the dispensations of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. It convicted them because they knew exactly what he was saying. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They just grit their teeth in defiance. In defiance. I think it's similar language to when those that are cast into outer darkness will gnash their teeth in defiance. There's that defiant spirit. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. Saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, Let's just establish God does not have hands, right? And the right hand of God, you throughout all of scripture is symbolic of God's power. And it did not say that he saw the father with Jesus Christ sitting on the father's right hand, it said he saw the glory of God, but you would ask him, how many persons did you see? He saw one person. He saw the glory of God and in the power of the glory of God, he saw it in the face of Jesus Christ as brother Bernard taught us on Sunday. And it's in the scripture. He beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing on the right hand of God. And they were like, well, no big deal. No, they knew exactly what he was saying. That Jesus, that man that they had crucified and that they knew was God, was the God that they gave lip service to serve. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, he was calling upon the one that he saw. He was calling upon his creator. He was calling upon God. And what name did he use? 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So when you see things like the right hand of God, you don't have to divide God into persons. You can just believe the simplicity that you can call on the name of the Lord Jesus and the fullness of the Godhead. You have that attention on your life. What a blessing that is when we call on the name of Jesus. Aren't you thankful that we can call on the name of Jesus? Let's stand together all across this place. And I want to conclude tonight. I want to conclude in prayer because like I said at the beginning, I do believe this is a revelation. And I believe that if maybe you disagree with what was said tonight, if maybe you were raised in a different background, I would, I would challenge you with a prayerful spirit. Open up this book right here and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. I've never known God to not answer that prayer. A sincere prayer from the heart that says, God, reveal yourself to me. And for those of us that are solid in that, that we've been blessed to hear this all our life. I want you to pray that God would give you a fresh burden and conviction for those that are trapped in false doctrine. That we would be passionate about this truth, that we would be full of love and concern for them and that God would anoint us to teach Bible studies, to defend his name, to lift him up everywhere we go. And so that God might use us to be that point of revelation to the lives of others, because I just want people to know him like I know him. Because if you could just taste and see, you'll know that the Lord is good.